0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies, Genocide Defined Broadly. And today, I have the pleasure of talking to Susan Thompson, author of Whispering Truth to Power, Everyday Resistance to Reconciliation in Post-Genocide Rwanda, published by University of Wisconsin Press. Regular listeners to the program will recall an interview we did with Jenny Burnett, who is interested in the long-term legacy of the genocide in Rwanda and how it impacted ordinary people. Thompson's book starts from the same place and shares some of the same concerns as Burnett's, but it has its own distinctive voice and its own concerns. Susan is most interested in the way that the governmental policies which purport to work to prevent future genocide actually function to preserve governmental power and autonomy. Her research jumps off from this to ask how ordinary Rwandans act to carve out a space for resistance, agency, or simply a space where they can be left alone. The book displays a sensitivity and concern for the lives of the disadvantaged while being thoroughly researched and remaining methodologically rigorous. It's an excellent work, and I'm greatly looking forward to talking about it with Susan. So with that, Susan, thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much.
0: We're thrilled to have you. Um, Susan, you, you begin your book with a rather remarkable explanation about how you became an academic. So as a beginning to the interview, I wonder if you would share this background with our listeners. What is your story, and, 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 and how did you come to be a professor?
1: Oh, gosh, it is a bit of a long story. I actually um, was a very naive 20-year-old, let's say, born in Nova Scotia, raised there, very concerned about Canadian issues of peacekeeping and social justice and our role in the world. It wasn't until much later that I realized most of it was hot air. We don't actually have that many peacekeepers. But, of course, Romeo Dallaire shapes the Canadian psyche on that. So, it did affect me for a long time. And I... Um actually happened to be in Rwanda during the 1994 genocide as a young UN staff member. So actually, after I finished my master's degree in political science at the University of British Columbia, I went to work uh, with UNISON, the United Nations mission in Somalia. And of course, um, listeners will know that that mission went south and it was closed down because it was unsafe for UN personnel to be there after the murder of um, Bangladeshi peacekeepers by presumably Somali forces. So after that process, a few things happened. I eventually found myself in Rwanda as a young UN staff member, witnessed the genocide, and remember thinking not only before in the work that I was doing with women's cooperators, but after as I was trying to understand how neighbors could kill neighbors that a lot of what I actually had seen in Rwanda and what the literature was saying, what media was saying, what academic books were saying, wasn't reflective of at all of what I had witnessed and what I had experienced when I was in the field in those early days in um, you know March 1994, leading up to April 1994. So I became, I don't want to say obsessive, but perhaps single-minded about trying to understand how ordinary people could have committed acts of genocide and how, of course, they were reconciling and, and moving on with their lives. And I'm grateful to the work of um, Scott Strauss and and Fuji for helping us make sense of what actually prompts people to kill one another. And as we both know, it's not ethnicity, it's something more complicated. So the government's insistence that ethnic identities are what's needed to resolve the agony of the genocide, to undo the hardship that people felt, and to undo the ethnic categories and that are the basis by which people were killed during the genocide just seemed like a, a good starting point for my research.
0: So I know that in the blurb on the back of the book, it lists you as assistant professor of peace and conflict studies. And you talk about political science, as, as you're being a political scientist, um, but your methods and sympathies are, are, are significantly different from the kind of quantitative political scientists that I know best. So, so how do you understand being a political scientist, and how do you fit into that discipline?
1: I wouldn't say um, that I ever sought as an academic to fit in with the traditional political mm. science department. I would say squarely that I have anthropology envy. Um, I was fortunate enough to have been educated in Canada, where political science is more it's called political science, but really it's politics. It's the sociology mm-hmm. of politics, and um, my department at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, was very supportive because my question is about state power, and that's a preoccupation of you know political scientists. And I've seen other scholars try to model reconciliation or try to do survey work in Rwanda, and of course you have to talk to people if you want to know what they think, and if you don't want to fall into the traps of speaking for them, but rather letting them speak for themselves. So my preoccupation, because of my background, having been in Rwanda in the few weeks before, having read obsessively and not really understood this large proportion of the population was just absent from the literature, I didn't see any other method than actually going to the school and talking to them.
0: So who did you talk to? I
1: spoke to people mostly in the south um, of the country, so around Butari town, but also into Gikangoro and over to Changugu, so in the, the southwest. So Changugu, of course, a border town to Bukavu and the DRC. Um, but I did follow people through their networks, meaning their personal, you know, their social networks, so whether family or business, religious ties, as the case might be. So I spent some time in the north, in Gisenyi and Ruangiri and a little bit uh, in the east, but I would say the majority, probably 80% of my work was in the south, localized between Gikangoro and Butari towns. And I spoke to people that would be identified as peasants. I don't take the peasantry as a, a lump or a mass. I it's segregated it into, you know, the very poor, the poor, the slightly less poor, the salaried poor, and I distinguish those from the local government officials, who themselves, themselves, most of them are salaried. Some of them are appointed and would be considered socio-economically poor, but there's also a category of local officials that receive a monthly income, and they're appointed by the central government. So, peasant interactions with those category of people, with those local officials.
0: So, what is the experience like of doing this kind of field work in Rwanda?
1: Um, I had my ups and downs. I would say, (laughs) as you know from reading parts of my book, the government did eventually stop my work, uh, and I was put in a re-education camp, what they call Ingando, it's a citizenship camp meaning that I had to be re-educated about the real history of Rwanda. And um, I think I say in my book that I was initially really nervous about this, but eventually I embraced it because, of course, it was a frontline look at what the government was actually trying to teach its population. And it was interesting when I got back to Canada and, you know, connecting with Rwandan friends living in the U.S. and in, in Canada and in Europe, they were like, oh, they treated you like a local and of course, um, we had to chuckle about that because my, you know, my youngest son was born in Kigali in 1999, and I had worked there as a human rights monitor for the United Nations since mm. 1998, moving over to the Faculty of Law. So, you know, you opened with the question about how I became a professor. It's quite haphazard because I had a mm-hmm. whole other life as a human rights monitor before I took this opportunity to reflect and, and write about, you know, what I saw in Rwanda.
0: So your your book basically emerges out of this or or responds or talks about a Rwandan response to a set of policies that the government has has created and implemented mm-hmm. called the, the policies of national unity and reconciliation. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh can you talk a little bit about what this policy is and, and, and how it came into being?
1: Yes, it's a policy that the ruling Rwandan Patriotic Front has put into place. And it's rooted around the idea that if Rwanda could return to the historical ethnic unity of the pre-colonial period, this would be an ideal foundation for post-genocide reconciliation. So the government, in my observation, has simplified the categories of who killed, who lived, and why during the genocide, and they use the policy and its various mechanisms. I break down in the book um, things like the Ngando camps that I just mentioned, that I experienced many Rwandans themselves experience it for different durations and for different purposes depending if you're a bureaucrat or a university student in training to be a bureaucrat or if you're Uh, an accused perpetrator trying to rehabilitate yourself to return back to society. Also looking at the gachacha courts, uh, the neo-traditional justice courts, you know, justice on the grass, that the government instituted for individuals to come together in a public space and to have a reckoning before their peers uh, about who did what to whom and when and to allow who um, to perpetrators, to apologize, to ask forgiveness, and to allow Tutsi survivors to grant that forgiveness. So what I found, looking behind the various instruments, and I identified, I can't remember in the book, 12 or 14 different instruments, mm-hmm. um, the government has actually used the lack of ethnic ethnic categories To hide not only its own excesses during the genocide but to impose a particular type of reconciliation that amongst the people that I spoke to, the people I consulted, that they found to be largely not only a front to their dignity but an affront to the memory uh, of their relatives, their friends, Hmm. family uh, that died during the genocide. So many, for example, um, Hutu women identify as survivors but they're not allowed, you know, by law, they're not allowed to do so uh, to identify as survivors because, of course, the Hutu, and Hutu didn't survive, they were the killer. So the government has instituted through this policy, under the cover of the legitimacy of this policy, uh, a series of mechanisms that actually mask not only its reinterpretation of history, but its role in precipitating the genocide, and of course, the human rights abuses and excesses it has perpetrated on Rwandans um, from, you know, at, at least 1990 when the Civil War started. And arguably, you could say, I think arguably, and I do mention this in the book, uh, the way that the current government has exported the Rwandan conflict to the to neighboring DRC, mm-hmm. you know, through various UN reports. And U.S. State Department reports that Rwanda has a proxy war going on right now in Congo.
0: Yeah, you you you, you, you do talk in the book about a variety of different practices, mm-hmm. and and one of the things you talk about is is about a state mandated view of the past, both the distant past and the recent past. One that everyone in Rwanda should learn, <laughs> one that everyone should accept. Um, And you argue in in, in the book that this is, in fact, a false history. Um, And you hinted at at how that is true uh, more recently, a minute ago, and I'd like to come back to that in a minute. But but looking back in the period before kind of Rwandan independence, and in some ways even before colonization, um, how does the the history that, that, that we tell about Rwanda differ from the history that the government of Rwanda tells?
1: I actually don't think it, it, amongst the lay public that the histories are that different, because mm-hmm. um, of course the current regime and of course, re, you know, preceding regimes have been able to craft a very sophisticated narrative that reinforces their elite history, and the mm-hmm. scholars Catherine and David Newberry write a really interesting article called Bringing the Peasant Back In, and they ask scholars to think about making a more rounded, nuanced view of Rwandan history by thinking about the role of non-elite. That's what they mean by bringing the peasant back in, and they report the ways, in an excellent article. Uh, the ways in which the history we have about Rwanda is actually largely statist, meaning it tells the history of those who occupy the roles of the state. So it's a state building history, it's a history of conquest, and it's a history that effaces or sublimates sort of the everyday lived historical experience of individuals. So that's one corrective I wanted to do um, with my work, and I certainly took a page from the Newberries.
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: this government does so well is it has crafted this linear line from the problems, the social, political, economic problems of today, which are obviously rooted in many ways in the genocide, but have deeper roots than that, and have just sort of leapfrogged back to this romantic pre-colonial period. So they've successfully recrafted a scenario in which all of Rwanda's ills are the responsibility of the Belgians. And, of course, they highlighted a little bit around what they call the Hutu Revolution of 1959. Mm -hmm. And this government has found a way to not only erase the agency of Rwandans themselves in Mm -hmm. receiving, you know, I don't want to say manipulating because that sounds too crafty, but of receiving these Belgian missionaries, these Belgian bureaucrats, and shaping the relations between the Belgians and the States. And this is, you know, where Catherine Newbury comes in again. She has a book um, called The Cohesion of Oppression, and she shows from 1860 to 1960 the ways in which the Tutsi court actually used the resources, used the power of the Belgians to institute new forms of oppression on peasants, not just Hutu peasants, but all peasants, and we see in this colonial encounter in the 1930s that it's a very easy scapegoat for the current government to look back and say, look, the, the ethnic divisions in Rwanda are because of the Belgians, and that's too mm-hmm. simplistic a reading, and I think many of us really believe that, and it's not necessarily our fault. They want to give us a pass in the sense <laughs> well, it's hard to get to beyond this PR version of history, and we see it's so much going on right now because, of course, it's the 20th anniversary of the genocide, and the government has systematically simplified um, history through timelines and short blurbs on its websites, in its media presentations. It has a short YouTube video. It's a very sophisticated rendering of history. And, you know, will it work? Will it continue to keep an uneasy peace in Rwanda? it could, because if it goes on for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, we will eventually begin to forget Mm -hmm. what happened and the ways in which Rwandan society was divided. It will become a new normal, for lack of a better phrase. So I think um, the historical linkages between the pre-colonial period and the post-genocide period, it's just too straightforward. The government doesn't really unpack the root causes of the genocide because, of course, to do so would require that they take a hard look at their own culpability.
0: And you mentioned Scott Strauss and Leanne Fuji. Okay. We had Leanne on the show a while back. Um, I've not had the opportunity to interview Scott. but. Um, but you talk about how recent research on the killings themselves suggest a much more complicated set of motivations for violence than the government's history allows. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, well, I think Leanne and Scott's work is so important because it really challenges this, the government's notion if you choose to apply the work uh, against the government's um, pronouncements mm-hmm. on history. The government has de- devised policies. Policy of National Unity and Reconciliation that I analyze in my book is definitely one that are rooted in the idea that the root cause of the 1994 genocide is because ethnic Hutu, the mass of ethnic Hutu, had deep-seated ethnic hatred in their hearts. Scott and Leanne look at, you know, the mezzo and the micro level, so sort of the, the, the state level and the county level, to show that individual motivations were not ethnically motivated in every case. There were definitely those who were enthusiastic killers. But we see more often, when you look at this local-level research, that local dynamics mattered, the nature of the relationship between local elites, church elites, government elites, economic elites, the resources available to peasants, whether they were in famine or they were not in famine, individual grievances between families, between individuals, within families in some cases. So there were many people who, at the local level, took advantage of the climate of civil war and the Mm -hmm. genocide was unleashed in that context. I think we can't forget this. There's this idea in the West that it was a spontaneous uprising. No, it was a reaction to a power play and the Hibramana government instituted genocide, I think, and I follow Strauss on this point as a reaction to the likelihood that it was going to lose control of the state. And new research has come out Um, since Leanne has published her book, since Scott has published his book, to suggest that the RPF under Paul Kagame, the current president of Rwanda, had a very specific interest in 100% capture of state power. There was no interest in either side to share state power. Mm -hmm. You have an RPF that is rewriting a specific version of history and imposing a set of root causes that just doesn't match what happened for the majority of the population. So that, of course, changes the type of reconciliation and the type of justice you can impose because it's outside individuals' lived experience. And that's one of the main points I'm trying to make in my book, is that because what people have to say they experienced and what they actually did experience, the gap in some cases is so vast that you have um, sort of a missing generation or a broken generation. There's there's just this disconnect between what they're told to do by their superiors and what actually happened to them.
0: Um. So this is a little bit of a tangent from the book, but I'm curious what you would say. Yeah. So so is the label genocide appropriate?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it is absolutely a genocide. Tutsi were targeted. Um, and I wouldn't want to put out there for even a minute that what happened in genocide was anything, what happened in Rwanda was anything but genocide. The point I was trying to make is that it was part of a continuum of violence. And I think most of the scholars that you see writing on the post-genocide period, there's very few of us. In fact, I haven't seen any um, you know, peer-reviewed published work that sees the genocide as anything but part of this continuum of violence. It was an extreme, mm-hmm. heinous, well planned, systematically rolled out structure of violence, but absolutely, both legally and morally, it's it's genocide.
0: Yeah, I was um, I was interviewing Adam Jones in a podcast that, um, well, it will will appear a little bit later than um, actually it's just appeared online, and and he was making the case for for moving away from the kind of UN-adopted definition of genocide as one that causes more – and maybe – I don't think I am, but I may be putting words into his mouth – causes more problems than it solves because of the kind of technical nature of how it defines genocide. And he's arguing that that broader labels about violations of human rights or, or war crimes or something like that may be a better approach to this kind of violence.
1: Yeah, I haven't read that work. I haven't heard that podcast. But based on what you've just said, I wholeheartedly agree. I think one thing that we could really nuance our understanding of Rwanda is if we could analyze it as a post-conflict society,
2: understanding
1: mm. this continuum of violence, rather than framing it in the way that the government, I think, you know, has a role in sort of narrowing our our line of vision as a post genocide society because those are two very different responses and it always gives the current party, the, the RPF, the you know, what Philip Reichens calls the genocide credit and mm-hmm. to expand the scope of vision to look at human rights abuses in the context of civil war from all sides. I think it's a really naive approach by many analysts who want to support the RPF, because of course we find genocide so heinous and morally reprehensible, but we don't hold the RPF to account for its excesses because it says to the uninitiated, what we did was in the context of genocide. Like, well, I don't actually accept that, because for me, it's no more human rights abuses by any side, full, full stop, just stop. Yeah. And, of course, the RPF is like, you can't say that. We have a moral high road here. And my response is, do you? I don't think you do. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very... I hate to be a cynic, but I'm very cynical about the commitment of this government to rights for all. I find it to be a very exclusionary and, you know, increasingly authoritarian government. I'm worried at this moment in history in 2014, 20 years old, because the trends we see from, you know, the late 80s to 1994 in which certain tensions within Rwandan society sharpened to the point of genocide, pushed, of course, by external factors, not least of which was the push to democratize by the international community and a fall in coffee prices. Uh, So those two, you know, those external factors are missing. But the internal inequality, the silencing and, you know, elimination of dissidents, I think we see a lot of similarities between then, you know, 1988 to 1994. And now, and I think we're going to enter into a period where the government continues to systematically exclude until it's running, you know, a minority government with a limited constituency to which it might appeal. And in in the process, peasants like the people I interviewed in my book live a life of a miseration.
0: Well, and that's a nice transition to, to what I guess might be considered the core of your book, which mm-hmm. is this idea of everyday resistance. So so can you talk a little bit about what you mean by everyday resistance?
1: Yeah, I use this idea of everyday resistance drawing on the work of James Scott. He writes about mm-hmm. the Weapons of the Week, and he uses it largely in the context of economic hardship in Southeast Asia. And I wanted to broaden it a little bit, to look at it as a way to understand the power relations in which people who technically are seen by policymakers, humanitarian workers, aid workers, uh, and others, you know, so-called foreign audiences, foreign foreign actors, don't really see them because they're spoken for by local elites or local government officials. So, I brought forth this idea of everyday resistance, which is really just subtle, minute, non-confrontational ways in which individuals who are subject to a strict regime of power, in this case being the policy of national unity and reconciliation, and the way in which they might dodge the expectations, they might subvert the expectations of the policy in a way that makes their truth livable, but also makes their life more sustainable. So, I also look at it in the context in which people might push back when they see an opening, because, of course, um, as I write in my book, it, it reveals one of the most vexing concerns of power. If power is illegitimate and the people to to which, uh, to those who are subject to that power know it's illegitimate, then the joke is on the power holder. And mm-hmm. I wanted to um, make that analysis. Not only are peasant people agents, they have power. It's just greatly circumscribed because you're looking at it through the lens of, non-confrontational minute acts that will likely not spill into revolution or something we might recognize in Tunisia or Egypt, you know, across the Arab spring. Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening in Rwanda. I think people are too, you know, they're too poor, basically. The majority are too poor and local officials I think are too scared uh, to be able to sort of turn on the ruling elites. Uh, So this, the concept of everyday resistance is really a diagnostic of the power of the state to show how much power the state has and to show the depths to which it reaches down to the most micro levels of society. And to show, you know, lastly, that for many Rwandans, it's an illegitimate oppressive form of power.
0: So, what kind of behaviors do Rwandans engage in, or or strategies do Rwandans use to resist in these kind of ways?
1: Well, I saw all kinds of different things, and I did make an ethical decision not to write about everything that I observed, Mm -hmm. Um, so I just narrowed it into the three broad categories that you mentioned in your introduction, so the staying on the sidelines, um, the withdrawn muteness, and what's the third one, I can't
0: remember the third one. Um, this is where I ad-lib for a while while you brainstorm.
1: Yeah, you'd think I would know my own categories, but <coughs> the beauty of everything is a long time.
0: It's been a while since you wrote the book. Well, why don't we start with the, the the muteness? Talk about that.
1: Um, Muteness, muteness, muteness. Oh, yeah, talk about Daily hardship. I'm just thumbing through my chapters. sex. <laughs> uh, It's such a delight to go back and read your own work, actually, because I was like, yeah, I don't think I would change what I said. I'm happy with that. (laughs) Irreverent Compliance, that was the one. The third one was Irreverent Compliance, um, which was actually my most favorite, so it's funny that I forgot it. Um, What I found was withdrawn muteness. It was largely women that practiced this, so perhaps using, you know, gender norms around how women are expected to behave in public. I never really got any data on that, but, you know, reading Jenny Burnett's um, wonderful
2: mm-hmm.
1: book, made me really think, oh, a lot of what I may have witnessed is because of these pre- prevalent gender norms in which women are sp- supposed to behave in a particular way. And I found that individuals would defy the expectations of the policy by remaining silent, because it made the local officials so mad, and that was sort of the breach of the power. That was the crack in the, in the facade of power. And I saw people of all ages use it, but particularly older women. And I, I know f- there was one story in the book in which I write about a woman, who had stolen back from a pile of bones that the government was trying to turn into a formal graveyard, the femur or the you know the thigh bone of her husband. Husband and the way that she worked through that, you know, with her friend and they, you know, they basically manipulated the local official. So such pride, for lack of a better word, about ways in which they could dupe their local official. And of course, I think one thing that becomes clear in looking at, you know, staying on the sidelines, withdrawing mutinous and irreverent compliance is the ways in which Rwandans really don't respect, in the post-genocide period, their local officials. They see them as outsiders. They see them as people who don't understand rural livelihoods, the rhythms and flows of rural life, whether it's famine or feast or time to plant or, you know, whatever the case might be, how to use land, how to use seeds and fertilizer and everything else. So There was always an opportunity for mocking, but it was always, you know, not always, but in many cases, it was also a structured, like, I'm not going to accept these ridiculous demands you put on me. And by remaining silent, it would just frustrate <laughs> the local official. If I, if I remember correctly, I don't know if I write about it in the book, but there was also a medical doctor who was like, I'm just not doing it because I'm better than you guys. And he held his status as someone who had social status and economic status before the genocide when he found himself in prison after the genocide and they expected him to do you know, manual labor till weed, plant beds, do this agriculture work. He's like, Look, I'm a doctor, I'm not doing <laughs> it and because they were younger than he was, and less educated and less had less status and just he was so disrespectful of the regime that he just sat quiet and he eventually came to understand Actually saying nothing is a really good strategy because I don't have to come into contact with these people I find so offensive to my, you know, to my value
0: code, basically. So I would hate to deprive you of your chance to talk about your favorite one. So (laughs) irreverent compliance?
1: Irreverent compliance was actually pretty interesting in the context that Rwanda's not a very... In formal settings, I don't want to get this idea that it's a society where people don't laugh. It absolutely is. But in mm-hmm. formal settings, so it's kind of a gravitas and a heaviness and just a, a unspoken but scripted formality. And irreverent compliance was always, you know, really revealing to me. And it wasn't for, you know, many months into my fieldwork that I really realized that I was seeing a breach of the script of National unity and Reconciliation. People would be in a group and they would laugh at the wrong moment. And then you'd see the local <laughs> official get flustered. And because he knows that his job is so hard because he's caught between a centralized state that wants him to impose these policies on that group of people, when that group of people pushed back, even in the smallest way by smiling or mocking, or just, you know, making a tiny joke, It would be so discombobulating for the power holder that they would go home proud of themselves because they had pushed back. It's not that they avoided the responsibility of the policy. They expressed their discontent through this, you know, breaching of the silence through laughter. And, of course, getting the rest of the group to laugh was particularly, you know, delightful to individuals because you could see the local official app just not panic, but really get flustered and not really know how to regain his authority, because uh, of hmm. course one thing that goes on a lot in Rwanda, these like sensitization meetings, so the local official will call the community together. I'm going to educate you about how you're going to behave before Gitacha, And they'll say crazy things like, it's the law, so just listen to me now. And of course, Gachacha wasn't the law per se. There's no law passed about attendance at gachacha. There's a quorum requirement, so if you could avoid, um, you know, you could avoid it if you were the hundred and one person. But we saw all across the gachacha jurisdictions and the locations where I worked, people just wouldn't show up for gachacha. The government would have to send sometimes armed gendarmes or military police. Local police to go get people and round them up so they could meet quorum, and in some of the places, gettatcha continued without quorum because the local officials like I just can't get them here today. It was just such a (laughs) frustration, and it was really in many ways irreverent compliance, sort of reflective of the cat and mouse game that was going on between local officials, many of whom had returned since the genocide and just had no sense of these local communities and individuals were like, I'm not going to be told what to do, but I know I have to stand here, so I'll stand here, but I'm not going to take it. And I think I found that so interesting because it was always a survivor, like a middle-aged woman. Like You know, you think of this as something that a young man might do. No, no. It was always someone with status, like with a dignity, with a Hmm. Um, picturing one woman in my head, like she was just so statuesque for lack of like right. She just had such gravitas in the community. But she was a widow of the genocide. She'd lost her children, you know, by Rwandan cultural codes. She was a broken woman, but she didn't accept this role that society had crafted for her. And she wasn't about to take what this, you know, young returnee from Uganda who barely spoke Kenya Rwanda was about <laughs> to tell her. So I always, I always thought it was... I was just so humbled in
0: those moments. I don't know how else to explain it. You 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 mentioned gachacha and and that's a really interesting section of your book because I, I, at least in my reading of the kind of at least journalistics account journalistic accounts of gachacha, it's generally presented as as a thoughtful effective response to the challenge of trying such a high number of possible perpetrators. Mm -hmm. You're more skeptical about this. Can you say something about why?
1: Yeah, I was pretty skeptical about Gachacha um, because I knew from talking to people in the hills that they didn't see themselves in these narrow categories of survivor and perpetrator that the Mm -hmm. government had, you know, by and large imposed. People had different experiences of violence, Sometimes they killed, they killed, but they also saved. Um, They didn't kill at all. They stood by and they had, um, you know, remorse or regret about not doing more to stop the genocide. Tutsi themselves, who of course had been targeted, but who hid and claimed that they didn't see anything. So just a multitude of violence that Katsacha just wasn't able to capture. And I became skeptical about it pretty quickly because you could see the ways in which it was almost a formal, documented, bureaucratic encounter. Uh, and I write about it. I have a couple articles that go up a little bit deeper than what you see in the book mm-hmm. to show the ways in which, as a legal system that has its roots in these you know, pre-traditional romanticize institutions, Kachacha, of course, used to be there to try community disputes, disputes over land, disputes over property, um, if someone had a conflict over a beer, their elders would sit with the aggrieved parties and they would have a meeting and everyone would come, you know, there'd be an airing of the grievances and some sort of peace would be achieved. So it's like a little bit of a simplistic rendering. But the point is it wasn't there to try crimes against humanity and genocide. That's a very different goal for this yeah. local elder based community dialogue institution that Gachacha's modeled on. So there was already a skepticism there because the government was like, Everybody knows what Gachacha is. I'm like, Do they? And some people did. <laughs> But for many people, community disputes were resolved at a family level, or at the through the church, or through some other community group, and there's always this group of people, particularly at the more marginal levels of society, who do their best to avoid contact with government officials because, of course, it kicks up more responsibilities, more duties. And Mm Gachacha was very clear very quickly to my eye that it was just one more burden on an already, you know, traumatized and broken society by a government that was hell-bent on declaring declaration or declaring reconciliation as quickly as possible. And I'm just jumping ahead in my mind here that to the Kwebuka 20, uh, you know, remember Rwanda hmm. festivities that the government has going on right now. If you read that, the government accounts uh, for Rwanda's reconciliation and its ethnic unity through the Gatacha courts. And I find that really dangerous because we know from research like mine, research from Jenny Burnett, work by Lars Waldorf, work by Bert Ingelaer, that we should be more skeptical about the healing and, you know, the reconciliation approval or the stamp of approval that Godotcha um, provided. So I try in my book to show it as a state space, a space where the power of the state is on display and where mm-hmm. people find a way to try to reach that power. Through, uh, you know, standing up to the state authorities, and I can't remember if I write about this, but I came, you know, I would often observe gacch trials, and the judges, because of their status as Tutsi survivors, had a little more leverage in the community. They would be able to talk about RPF excesses, but they would like look away. They wouldn't look at anybody in particular. They just sort of ramble. No one would stop them because they had the floor. And I eventually observed over time the ways in which. Tutsi as the primary actor and the actor with sort of the bulk of the power in that in that mechanism of state power were able to stand up and say, you know, I don't I'm not sure about this because I see RPF crimes, I see hardships in my community, and you're saying we're reconciled, but are we? And people could get away with breaking the silence, you know, in that mm. context. And that's that's really what that chapter is
0: about. One of the things that really stood out to me and and, and and maybe it's maybe it's a poor reading on my part, but maybe not. I, I remember reading one of the quotes you provided from one of the people you, you interviewed uh-huh. who said something along the lines of I'm four y i am 4 I was four years old when the genocide happened. Um, and so my relationship to the genocide is he didn't say it, this, or she, I don't remember which, yeah, really, don't remember but it. I, I took it to be kind of dramatically different from those people who were old enough to be considered part, or to have participated or to have uh, been kind of adults during that time. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about that distinction between people who were too young to have uh, experienced the genocide as adults and, and those you interviewed who who were um, adults and seemingly responsible.
1: Yeah, I didn't come across that many. If I remember the quote that you're referring to, it's, the, it's a nephew of one of my participants. Mm, okay. I think so. I'm just trying to think it through because, of course, there's so much that I gathered that I didn't write about, um, and I have this data bank of stories that were that are kicking up right now. Um, what I, I didn't speak to that many people under the age of 16. Uh, mostly because my university didn't actually want me to do that. I didn't have sit-down life history interviews with more than two people, I think, and I had to get a special protocol Hmm. um, for that because the Canadian system is a little bit different than the American system. So I could do it in a way that wasn't excessively bureaucratic, um, but there were concerns that I wouldn't be able to publish my work if I didn't have all this paperwork. In place. Hmm. So that was really shaping some of the research design in terms of the type of people I could actually interview. And if you read the book, there's actually not that many young voices because yeah. I come into them through participant observation. So you recall from my method section, I talk about how I used to walk in the hills after dinner and people would, I mean, I learned so much in those moments and I could tell through experiential categories, some of what people may have experienced, particularly when you met someone who spoke French that would, you know, reveal the difference or a certain kind of education level. Mm-hmm. Or when you met someone who spoke Kiswahili, you're like, oh, maybe they they spent time in a refugee camp somewhere and have recently returned and people who spoke only Kinyarwanda. So my Kinyarwanda was functional, I would say, but getting along with a translator on the deep emotional issues of what people who were too young to have experienced the genocide experience under the policy of national union reconciliation, I didn't collect, for lack of a better word, um, very many of those stories for the the reasons I just laid out. And in fact, I had designed the research to go back, you know, five, ten years after the original project, but of course, um, (laughs) the current government declared me persona non grata, and I have no plans to return, which is actually one of the... um, Yeah, it's just a really sad point for me. I really wish I could return.
0: I was going to say, it's the rare academic who's viewed as so important by a government that they're declared persona non grata.
1: Well, it's not unique to me. I would say, um, you know, there are many of us who have it. I just happen, I think, to be more vocal about it. I feel so Mm -hmm. strongly about, you know, what I found, what I saw. And the voice that I have because the government has targeted me the question becomes why her like why would you pick me out of all the other academics there's so many who have been shut down who are allowed to return those who've been shut down had their work shut down and are unable to return um, and the government kind of shoots itself in the foot in many ways because it brings a negative kind of attention so I'm not really sure Mm-hmm. Um, why they targeted me, my theory is because, you know, I had lived there immediately after the genocide, worked at the University of Rwanda for a long time, um, training Anglophone lawyers to join the legal system to begin to try these genocide there. You know, our son was born there, and that was a big deal. He was like the first white kid or one of the first white kids, I not remember. And, you know, there was always like a sort of an interest around me. So when I returned to do this research, remember I was sitting with the head of the National Union Commission before I even started my interviews and she's like you're gonna tell the white people how it really is And I was like if that's what I find that's what I'll tell them (laughs) and then of course I didn't realize the magnitude of those words until much later but I had kind of a rare opportunity because even you know the head of the National Union Commission at that time in 2006 I had been The law professor of her daughter, and I can't remember what her daughter was doing. She was working for an NGO or something like that, but she thanked me for training her daughter, and I was like, oh, boy. (laughs) I I did have this network, and I mean, over time, the students that I trained, you know, I don't hear from them very often anymore because, of course, I'm in this sort of out position at the moment, and of course, I understand it because when you're in a society like that, the risks of speaking off script, you know, the the risks are high. So I take it, but I do have sadness that I can't return to Rwanda to check in on the people I consulted.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned earlier the kind of ethical issues involved. How did you how did you address this kind of the ethical issues of speaking with subjects or with, with people, and 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 using them as as material in your book, yet recognizing that that presumably the government was going to read your book.
1: Mm-hmm. I didn't actually presume they would read it, but I did take um, a lots of different safeguards. As you know, I don't use any actual names. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't use place names. I did have some sites with different editors along the publication trail. They wanted me to give dates, and there, there are um, no dates, if I remember correctly, in the book. I also... Um, Stopped interviewing once the government became aware of my work so I think that was one hmm. thing that happened as they became aware that I was documenting these negative stories and they weren't negative stories per se They were just what people were telling me. I didn't know the power of what I was sitting on until much later um, I Wrote about those who reaffirmed their commitments. I do open the book with, um, you know, the ways in which people came to reaffirm their commitment to the research. So not everybody has excerpts because I didn't get that approval or that permission. And I always thought it was so revealing the ways in which people who were sort of painfully poor would come to see me when it was probably pretty clear I was being watched by the police or some local official or by someone that they would come to my home because I was under house arrest and say, I trust you to tell the story, please do so. And I remember one story, I can't remember the name of the woman that I use in the book, but she she was like, if they noticed you amongst all these white people, that's good. I think that's good. I want to be in your project. And like, well, that's a fair, fair point. And I always thought it was so revealing of like the political acumen that, you know, these people that many of us think have no political acumen because they're poor, they're, you know, they don't speak a common language or whatever the case might be the acumen that they displayed in those moments. Um, So when my work was stopped, I just started shredding papers. Um, Hmm. I had taken pretty fastidious notes. I had most of my files uploaded to a G drive that was external um, at my university in Canada. I was changing the passwords like twice a day and stuff like this. Um, And the government did take some of my papers, like when my papers eventually arrived. Because they were like, you're going to take it to this transport company, and they'll ship everything home for you. And I was like, what? So I, I did it, and not everything arrived. Huh. Um, but I I'm, don't think anyone's been compromised to the best of my ability. I don't think the government reads as closely as academics think is one thing. Mm. Um, I do keep a blog, but I don't. I never mention people on my blog. Um, and I've certainly been attacked for my academic views before my work is even published. So I th- I always find that really interesting. Um, there, there's no way they could have read it. It's not even available in the United States, for example. Um, and I. Only wrote about people in context I didn't single anybody out so if you look actually most people in the book only sort of get two or three excerpts except one or Mm -hmm. two sort of key informants I was always oscillating between what I thought the government would be capable of which I now have come to realize isn't that much um, and what was needed to protect individuals so when my work was stopped like you know that was actually a good thing in the sense that it made me exceedingly more careful I think good ethnography, you don't actually need to know the people. You just need to have a sense of them. Mm-hmm. I don't like, when I look at Jenny Burnett's book, it's the story she tells is so amazing. And yes, you know, those indeed. are people she met, you know, two years ago kind of things. So, you know, in many ways, I find her work more provocative. But she's so careful and she's so ethical. There would be no way for the government, assuming they read it, which I would think they haven't. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that's what this government's not particularly good at that. And I actually think they're on, you know, they're on the defensive right now. So we have this idea that there's this powerful monolith, but I think there's branches of the government that are working more efficiently than others. And I think, you know, dealing with foreign
0: academics is not a priority. (laughs) I mean, mean, I'm delusional, but that's what I think. Well. So we've taken a lot of your time, uh, uh, Susan, and we really appreciate it. Let let me ask just a a couple concluding questions. And and the first of those is pretty simple. Uh, For people interested in going further, do you have a, a book or maybe two that you might recommend that they read?
1: On Rwanda? Absolutely. There's one book I think everyone should read. It's by a now-deceased uh, human rights activist, journalist, uh, called Andre Sibomana, and it's actually a book that I teach. It's called Hope for Rwanda, and it's an interview that he has with Karina Tritsakian, uh of Human Rights Watch, and it's mm. 1998. So he's doing an accounting of the immediate post-genocide period, and he's looking back at uh, what the previous regime did and what he thinks this regime needs to do differently. And, of course, reading it from 2014, you see the ways in which he was incredibly prescient. All these hardening divisions and divides and points of inequality and stress that we see in the Rwandan, you know, social system right now, Sibomana points them out and he makes clear links to the Hyberimana regime. That's one book I would definitely recommend for people. Another one, if you're interested in the historical framework of Rwandan state building and how ethnic identities came to be political tools, I have to recommend Catherine Newberry's The Cohesion of Oppression. It's published in 1998 by Columbia University and she does a careful study in the west of the country to show how Hutu and Tutsi were economic categories and how through the state-building project they became politicized and they became hardened and they became part of a broader political project. I think her, her book is one of the most carefully researched and, you know, must read books. I think if you want to understand current Rwanda, you should read Catherine's book.
0: Wonderful. And, uh, and, and, and maybe the, one of the two you just uh, listed is, 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 is the answer to this question, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. If there's one book you would suggest that all undergraduates in college should read, what would that be?
1: One book? Any book? Yeah. That's a really good question. What book would it be? I'm going to go with a novel. It's called The Book of Negroes. It's a historical fiction written by a Canadian novelist named Lawrence Hill. And he writes about um, the slavery experience from West Africa through to the cotton picking regions of the United States through, you know, Eastern Canada, Nova Scotia, where I'm from through the eyes of a young woman who was actually educated on the West Africa side, so that bought her many favors, and it eventually facilitated her return to West Africa after 30 or 40 years um, as a slave. She didn't like being in West Africa, so she goes to Britain, and she becomes a central actor in, you know, sort of the first human rights activist movement to end slavery. I'd really recommend Lawrence Hill's The Book of Negroes if you want to understand the structural racism and other points of exclusion in any society, I think you can't do better than to start with, you know, our own society, the United States.
0: Well, I have to say, I've, am I'm, I'm now fascinated. Spring break is coming up at least for me in a week. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and I may actually have a chance to read that. I yeah, don't know.
1: It's so gorgeous. It's just one of the most gorgeous books I've ever laid eyes on. Yeah. And I think of it often. I recommend it to people all the time.
0: Well, I will, I will, uh, check that out from the library and put it on my desk as an incentive to get done with all of my grading (laughs) before spring break is done. Oh, yeah. I'm not delusional. So the last question. Yeah. Yeah, What are you working on now?
1: I'm actually working on another book about Rwanda, which I think will be my last formal piece of writing because, of course, it's pretty clear I can't return to the country at least Mm. anytime soon. So I actually have a contract um, with Yale University Press, to write a book about Rwanda since 1994 to 2014. Mm. And I'm going to write about... um, So the main question that frames that book is how sustainable are the successes of this government? Mm. And um, that conversation we had about Adam Jones is basically the framework for the book. I want people to think of Rwanda as a post-conflict society. And then I'm going to dissect the different myths that are in circulation in the West. You know, Rwanda is... A trailblazer for gender equality. Rwanda is an economic miracle. Rwanda is ethnically unified and show the origins of these myths across each of the chapters of the book and then provide the empirical evidence to say, let's be careful because we, we do want to avoid um, future violence in this country. So just to put a caution on the celebratory reading that we see so much of these days in the West through through the, through the that manuscript.
0: It sounds like a wonderful pro- pro- project and uh And I hope when it's done, you'll come back on the show and be with us again. I would love it. But uh, for now, thank you so much. It was a wonderful interview. I had a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thanks so much. And uh, have a great last week of classes before spring break.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Kelly. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you much. Take care.
1: You too.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Susan Thompson, author of Whispering Truth to Power, Everyday Resistance to Reconciliation in Post-Genocide Rwanda published by the University of Wisconsin Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for an interview with Mark Levine, author of a new two-volume set entitled The Crisis of Genocide. Until then, have a great month.